Robert Lowry was a literature professor at Bucknell University. He was a Baptist pastor and he wrote a lot of hymns. He lived during a time when Christians had a common greeting, especially around Easter time. They would greet each other with, He is risen. And the response, He is risen indeed. And he became somewhat uh, alarmed that Christians started to forget the response and forget the greeting. This morning I've uh, tried many people. I've come up to them and he has risen. And some people have just shot right back. He has risen indeed. And about half of them looked at me like, what? (laughs) What's that about? Like there was no context. And he began to be very alarmed at this. And one Sunday evening, he was having devotions in Luke chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. And he read this. He is not here, the words of the angel, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. He was so moved by that text, it struck him so much that Jesus rose from the dead, just as he predicted. He spontaneously penned out the words of a classic hymn, Christ Arose. The words of the hymn are, Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord, Vainly they watched his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they sealed the dead, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. And then the great chorus, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever With the saints to reign, he arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. And it's interesting that today in Christianity, people would begin to forget that. Easter's not about eggs, it's not about that little fake grass stuff you put in the little dyed baskets. And those horrible little spongy candies. Now, when you eat them, they dye your mouth, whatever color they are, blue, little blue bunnies. No, Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And throughout history, men have tried to explain away the resurrection, to get rid of it. It makes them uncomfortable. Sadly, many people who even profess to be Christians, liberal Christians, who deny the miracles of the Bible and the authority of the Scriptures even try to explain away the resurrection. Yet it is a fact so well documented in history, so well documented in the Bible, so well documented in the lives of changed people, millions of them. It's irrefutable. Now, the question might be asked, why do people deny the resurrection? And we might think at first that it has something to do with just the simple truth that everyone knows people don't rise from the dead. Yeah, I don't know anybody personally in my lifetime that's ever risen from the dead. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead, and so we can begin to think, well, maybe people don't want to believe the resurrection because it's not normal. 
Now, it's true, it's not normal. It is a supernatural event. But there is a real reason why people don't like the resurrection. And that is sin. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we will rise from the dead. And if we rise from the dead, then there is judgment to face. There is accountability before God. And it matters how you live. It matters what you think. It matters what you do. Because God is Lord and you will die and you will face judgment after death. And so if you want to live your own way, if you want to do your own thing, if you don't want to take up your cross and follow after Jesus and submit to him as your Lord and Savior, one of the common ways that people deal with that is just to deny it. They're like a drunk who says, oh, I don't have a drinking problem, but every day he drinks himself drunk. It scares them to think of the resurrection, that it might be true. And to even think that it might be true scares them because they know they aren't living for God. And they want to have their sin, they want to have their autonomy, and so they just deny it. Others try to relegate it to myth. Oh, it's just a myth. I mean, come on. We all know that the Bible teaches the myth of Jesus and the myth of his death and the myth of his resurrection. So they just take the whole story and they just put it in the myth shelf of their mind. But let me ask you, if you were to stand on a cliff, a a very high building, a precipice, and you were to jump off, Now, you know stories of people who have jumped off of cliffs and buildings and fallen and splattered themselves on the ground beneath. And on the way down, you decide to relegate your jump to myth. And you just say, well, I am not going to hit. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be fine when I get to the bottom. I mean, after all, Wile E. Coyote's done it. (laughs) And so you jump off. And you say, it's a myth that you splatter yourself below. But does that change the facts? No. It's just a denial of the facts. Practicing denial or labeling the resurrection of myth is really to do nothing but to impel oneself on the spear of one's own ignorance. When your eternal destiny is on the line, you need to make very careful and cautious inquiry into the resurrection And make sure that you aren't just guessing that it might not be true. Others have come up with some more sophisticated ways of denying the resurrections. The Muslims teach this one. Oh, it was an imposter who died. It wasn't actually Jesus who died. It was some other, it was a a different person. And that is why later Jesus appeared to so many. Well, at least the Muslims have it right. Jesus did supposedly die, and he did appear to many people afterwards. They will admit that. But what they can't handle is the fact that he rose from the dead, because if he did rise from the dead, Muhammad isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. So they teach that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, as the scriptures say. But this, again, is to play the ostrich and stick one's head into the hole of ignorance. I mean, think about this. Do you really think that the Jews who followed Jesus around to trap him, who listened to him, who were rebuked by him, 
who plotted against him, who paid Judas, who tried him, who sent him to Pilate, who saw him get tried again, who sent him to Herod, who saw him get tried again, who sent it to Pilate, who saw him get tried again, who sent him to the people, who instigated the crowds against him, who watched him get crucified, were mistaken? Do you think the crowd who cried out, crucify him, didn't know who Jesus was? Do you think the disciples didn't know that that was Jesus? Do you think the woman who took his body down and wrapped him in over a hundred pounds of cloths and spices didn't really realize that was Jesus? It is a greater leap of faith to believe that theory than to just believe in the resurrection itself. Others have postulated the swoon theory. I like this one. Jesus actually didn't die. I mean, it was him on the cross, but he just swooned. He fainted. He fainted. And then, you know, after the, the crucifixion, they put him in the tomb, and the coolness of the tomb revived him. Or maybe the fragrant spices, the embalming spices, snapped him out of it. He got up and walked out. And that's why they saw him later. Oh, he was a little beat up, but he walked out. Consider that Jesus had a crown of thorns placed on his head, that he was beaten, that he was whipped, that he was scourged, a punishment which often killed people in and of itself, a whip with bone and glass and chunks of rock woven into the strands. You would be beat until the flesh was ripped off your back. He was scourged, he was whipped, he was nailed to a cross, crucified, stabbed in the side with a spear until water and blood came out. Expert Roman torturers said he was dead. The two Marys, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus and the disciples, said he was dead. The women then took that body and carefully wrapped it in spices and cloths. And did they not know? Did no one know that Jesus had just fainted? Did Jesus just wake up from his torture and crucifixion? Having had his feet and hands nailed to the cross, his side pierced through with a spear, having been wrapped up like a mummy, and he just woke up? popped off the cloths, rolled away a stone that one early church writer said was so big it took 20 men to move it, and snuck past the Roman guards and they didn't even see him. That is the best theory. Still others have advocated that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. The disciples snuck past the guards and stole his body. You see, Jesus predicted that he was going to rise again on multiple occasions. The Jews knew he predicted he was going to rise from the dead. And so they persuaded Pilate to make sure the tomb was guarded. As a matter of fact, Matthew 27 says that Pilate told the Roman guard to make the the tomb as secure as they knew how. So we know that they expected this resurrection thing, and since none of them believed in the resurrection, they knew the only way they could pull it off is to steal the body. 
So they put a guard up to 60 men in front of this tomb. Now, this is pretty silly if you think about it. You've got 60 guys guarding a dead man. They put the seal of Rome on the tomb, and the seal of Rome was to claim that stone and that tomb, the property of Rome. And if you messed with that seal, you would be messing with Rome itself. Besides that, each Roman guard had a pike, a kind of spear with a club head that they could either stab or wield. They had a large three-foot shield, they had a three-foot sword, and they had a dagger. Each Roman soldier was trained to guard a six-by-six-foot piece of ground unto death, and the punishment for falling asleep on duty was execution. And you have 60 of them standing in front of the tomb, and the disciples sneak past them, break the seal, roll the stone away, and still out the body, and no one ever saw it. These are the kind of things that men in desperate desire to to escape judgment, to escape accountability before God have conjured up. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to over 500 people. And this is the problem, see, that bothers those who don't want to believe in the resurrection. History is so clear. The testimonies are so clear that he was crucified and he did show up later that they've got to make sure he didn't die or there was an imposter or something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Greeks were influencing the church at Corinth to believe the resurrection had not taken place. And guess what their reasoning was? The same reason people today don't want to believe in the resurrection. The Greeks wanted to indulge their flesh. They didn't want to be accountable to God. They they wanted to get rid of hell and get rid of judgment and get rid of facing God after death. They wanted to live like they wanted to. And so the most natural thing to do is to jump off the cliff of eternity and choose to believe that the resurrection didn't take place. Now, there is a way that you can both believe in the resurrection and escape the judgment of God. You know, it's not a both and thing. You don't have to believe the resurrection so you can be judged. You see, God is holy and God is just. And yes, he's compassionate. And yes, he's merciful. And yes, he's loving. But he is never these to the exclusion of these. He is always just and always loving, always holy and always compassionate. He is all of these things all the time. And sure, God loves you. And sure, God wants to save you. But he must punish sin because his justice demands it. The scriptures say God will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. And we are all guilty and we all deserve the punishment. So the question is, how... Can we believe in the resurrection and escape the consequences of our own rebellion against God? And that is why Paul writes what he does in 1 Corinthians 15 to explain the importance of the resurrection and how we can believe it. 
and still escape the judgment of God. And so if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians 15.1. And I'm going to read the first four verses. You can follow along. Paul says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here God's word lays out for you the process, the result, and the content of the most precious and priceless gift you will ever be offered. He gives us five things you must do in order to receive and enjoy the benefits of God's gracious gift to you. Look at the first one found in verse 1. You must have God's present delivered to you. You know, at Christmas time, you're trying to get those things mailed off. You've got relatives in other states, you go get those packages, maybe you put them in a box, you take them down to the mail, mail place or post office or UPS, and you ship them. You need a deliverer. Why? Because it doesn't do any good for you to buy people presents if you can't deliver them. They just sit at your house forever. No, presents are made to deliver. And just as presents are made to deliver, God's present is made to deliver. And notice what 15.1 says. Paul says, I make known to you, brethren. That is how he delivered it, the gospel. He goes on to say, which I preached to you. And if you look in verse 2, towards the end, he says, the word which I preached to you. And then in verse 3, I delivered to you. Every once in a while, I get a call from you know, somebody on the phone. You probably get these too. And hi, Mr. Hughes. And, uh, yes, you've won a free VCR or a TV. Oh, great, delivered to my house. Oh, you have to come and sit through a two-hour high-pressure sales presentation. (laughs) Then, after that, after you pay the price of enduring our high-pressure sales class, we will give you your free gift. Goodbye. God has a gift for you this morning, and I am going to deliver it to you. And you can just receive it. God's gift is all wrapped up in words, and those words are called the gospel. Paul says, I delivered to you the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and it's coming to an ear near you this morning. It's priceless, it's life-changing, it will bring you forgiveness, it will bring you happiness, it will bring you joy if you will receive it. And that's what we learn in the text. The second thing is, is you must receive God's present. Look at 15.1 again. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received. When the mailman or someone from the UPS comes to your door with a package, you have a choice, don't you? You can either receive the thing or you can reject it. You can either accept what is given to you or you can choose not to accept what is given to you. Paul is saying, you Corinthians received God's gift delivered to you by me. 
And the question you need to ask yourself this Easter morning is, will you receive God's gift delivered to you by me? The third thing we see in the text, look there, is that you must stand on God's presence. That doesn't mean physically stand. It means take a mental stand. It means to place your faith in. It means to be unmoved from the message of the gospel. That you become so convinced, you become unwavering. You trust in, you have faith in, you do not move from your stand on the gospel. Once God's gift is delivered to you, you must receive it and you must take a stand on it. That is called faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for those who believe in God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. When God delivers to you his priceless gift contained in words called the gospel, you must receive it, you must take your stand on it. Why? Look at the text in verse 2. Notice what it says there at the beginning of verse 2. By which also you are saved. Or it might be literally translated by which you are being saved. Speaking of not just the point in time, but the whole process of your life as you're growing in sanctification and you're progressing towards that day when you will stand before Jesus face to face. That is why you need to receive and stand on God's precious gift called the gospel. The scriptures tell us that all men are sinners. All men are in need of salvation. God is holy. He has to punish sin. And so he gives us this gospel that is able to save us from sin's consequences so that you and I won't spend an eternity in hell suffering conscious torment in the lake of fire forever and ever because we are sinners. God made a provision and that provision is tied up in this thing called the gospel which is able to save you from the consequences of your sin. Now, let me ask you this question. Some of you may be sitting out there and you're thinking, well, Jack, I, I wonder if I have this gift. I mean, how do I know if I have this gift? I want to make sure I have this gift. Well, you can find out if you have this gift. I ask you a few questions. First, do you know for sure that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? Now, some of you out there are thinking, sure, I know. Others of you are thinking, no, I know I'm not. Other of you may be thinking, I think so, or maybe, or I'm not sure. And those are the three kinds of answers you will get. Every one of you has those answers rolling around in their head right now. You either know, you know you aren't, or you are, or you're unsure. Now, if you said... No, I want to make sure that this morning you leave here knowing. If you said, I'm not sure, I want to make sure you leave here sure. But even if you said yes, you still may not be sure. You may just think you are sure. And so, let me ask you another question. Let's just say today you, you know, went 
from here and you got in your car, it's a nice Easter day, you're going to go eat some ham somewhere, turkey or whatever. And you're on your way home and you get in a car accident and you die. Some guy plows into you with a Mack truck. It happens. I've done funerals for babies and teenagers and young people of all ages all the way up to old people. We don't know when we're going to die. It happens suddenly. Few people know when they're actually going to die. Most people do not. So you die. And all of a sudden you're standing before Jesus. And you see him there with his eyes like the flame of fire. And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, think about it. What would you say? If Jesus said, why would I let you into my heaven, what would you say? I know what some of you would say. Some of you would give the answer, well, you know, I've been a good person. You know, I've gone to church. I've, uh, you know, I, I'm not a murderer. Um, I'm better than most people. I try to do what's right. I believe in God. I even maybe read my Bible. So your answer is that. If that sounds like you, I have good news for you and bad news for you. The bad news is that right now, you are not going to heaven. You are not saved. You are not a Christian. You are not a believer. And if you did die on the way home, you would go to hell. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Jack, that's pretty strong. I mean, what do you mean? I mean, I'm a Christian. I mean, I know I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad were Christian. I mean, I believe in God. You can't tell me I'm not a Christian, so I would like God to tell you. So let's look at his word. God has some things he wants to tell you. Look at Romans chapter 3. We are in 1 Corinthians. If you go back one book You will get to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 3 and look at verse 23. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul argues that all men are sinners. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're moral or not. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. All have turned aside and together the accumulated mass of them have become worthless. And look at what he says in Romans 3.23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. Now, just stop there for a second. Notice what he says here. All, every, and each of us have sinned. All, every, and each of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he says... Being justified, that is being made right before God, being declared righteous by God, being saved as a gift by His, that is God's grace. Now, this tells you that first you are a sinner, we all are, and secondly it tells you that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by two things. What are those? Gift. And grace. Now, what is a gift? Let's say it was your birthday, and I bought this really nice gift. And I gave it to you, and you unwrapped it and thought, wow, this is great. And I said, here's the bill for it. (laughs) Now, that would be a bummer. 
Because gifts shouldn't cost anything. Gifts are always given freely, without cost, and so is God's gift. The text here in Romans says, you are justified as a gift, something you don't earn, and by grace. And grace is basically the same thing. Grace is to receive unmerited favor from God to get something you don't deserve. You know, as you leave here today, they'll be handing out keys to Ferraris, and you can have those. Really? Well, why? I'm, I'm just a visitor. Well, we just wanted to give it to you. That would be very gracious. You would be able to receive something you didn't earn, you didn't even deserve. And you receive something. That is what grace is. When God gives you something you don't deserve. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians is where we're at. Then Galatians. And then Ephesians chapter 2. Here Paul explains how the Ephesians were saved. And I want you to look at verses 8 and 9, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and look there and see what it says. See what God is saying to you here. God says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Notice the word grace again. Notice the phrase, not of yourself. Notice the phrase, gift of God again. Notice the phrase, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Unmerited favor, not of yourself, gift of God, not a result of works, is clear. About as clear as you can get it. Turn over to 2 Timothy, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Here Paul is explaining why he is willing to suffer for the gospel. It is because it is the power of God for all those who believe. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, notice what he says. Speaking of God, he says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Then notice what the text says. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Notice God is the one who saves, not us. He does it through his holy calling, not our calling. We are not saved according to our works, the text says. We are saved according to His purpose, His grace, which He granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So if you died today, and you stood before Jesus Christ, and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, and you begin to spout off to Him your good works, you are not going there. Because no one is saved by good works. As a matter of fact, Galatians 5.4, when Paul addresses the Judaizers who thought they were saved by works, this is what he told them. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You who are trying to be justified by works. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And I tell you the same thing. If that was your answer, if your answer was, I've been good. You know, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not Charles Manson. You know, I've, I've tried to be good. I've tried to read my Bible. That is the wrong answer. 
that shows that you are trusting in your works to save you, and no one is saved by works. As we have seen in just a sampling of verses, we could go to more. So you know that from what we've learned so far in the text, that the gospel is something that is delivered to you. The gospel is something you must receive. The gospel is something you must stand on. But what is it? You may be thinking to yourself, yeah, what is it? I mean, I want it. I want this gospel. I want to receive this thing and stand on this thing. I mean, I want to get this right. And that brings us to the next point. Look at verse 3 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here we learn what the gift is. You must understand what God's present is before you can truly receive it and stand on it. You don't just keep it wrapped up. Somebody gives you a gift, you say, oh, well, thank you for the paper and the box. I've never opened it, but I'm sure it's nice. So let's unwrap this gift. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul says, out of everything I've done for you Corinthians, the most important thing I have ever done of first importance is my delivery of the gospel to you. The gospel is more important than your family. It's more important than your husband, than your children, than your work, than your money, than your hobbies, than anything else. Why? Because the scriptures say it is the power of God for all who believe. It is the only power of God. And you're thinking, okay, well then tell us what it is. Okay, let's look. Verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Do you know why Jesus was born on Christmas morning? So he could die on Good Friday. He was born to die. And not just die, but die for you. To take your sins upon himself and bear your iniquities and to suffer the just consequence that you deserve and I deserve to die that we through faith might receive that gift and be saved. He was the perfect substitute. He was God become man, lived a perfect life and willingly gave himself in substitution for all those who would believe And the text gives us the guarantee, doesn't it? It says, according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures say. He uses that phrase twice, again at the end of verse 4. We read Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. But what? The Lord has caused the iniquities of us all, all of us, to fall on Jesus. Let's open the package a little more. Look at verse 4. The gospel is not only a message that Jesus died for you and your sins, it is also the message that he was buried. Now, why does he even throw this in here? Of course he was buried. He throws this in here to emphasize the fact of the resurrection. You have to be dead before you can be raised. And so he says, and he was put in the ground. He was put in the ground. He didn't just swoon on the cross. Look at the end of verse 4 where we take the last bit of wrapping off God's priceless gift. The word of God says, And that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Why is the resurrection so important? 
Why is it so necessary that you and everyone here believe the resurrection? You may be thinking to yourself, can't I just be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection? I mean, come on, it's just hard for me to believe. But look at verse 12. Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul answers this question. Notice what he says there. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and we have hoped in Christ in this life only, are of all men most to be pitied. Those are some good reasons. He gives seven of them there. If Christ did not rise from the dead... Preaching the gospel is worthless because it's not the good news, it's the false news. He says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, your faith is vain. He says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, the apostles are liars, therefore the Bible is a lie, and we just pitch the whole thing. If Christ did not rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. If Christ did not rise from the dead, you are still in your sins. If Christ did not rise from the dead, those who have died trusting Christ have perished. And seventh, if Christ did not rise from the dead, people should just pity us for being such dupes. Now, I have just delivered to you God's priceless gift. Did you see it? Did you see the gift of Jesus Christ and his work? On the cross, his death, his resurrection. Did you see that? That is the gospel. That is the gift. Jesus Christ contained in the words of the gospel delivered to you. The scriptures say it is the power of God for all who believe. Not a power of God. The only way anyone will ever get to heaven is by receiving and taking their stand on, placing their faith in the gospel. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. According to the scriptures, he was buried. And will you receive this? Will you stand on it? Will you be saved by Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection? Now, some of you out there might be saying, you know, I understand this, but is that all I need to do? Do I just need to acknowledge the facts? No. Demons acknowledge the facts. Many people acknowledge the facts. What does it mean to receive Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection? Let me just read to you a few texts. The first is Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Listen to what it says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's this morning. Call upon him while he is near. That is right now. Now listen to this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon him. Did you see that? This is what it means to come to Jesus Christ. It means to forsake 
your wicked way. Forsake your wicked thoughts to return or repent and pursue God. And then you will receive God's compassion and then you will be pardoned or forgiven. Paul said it this way in Romans 10 verses 8 and 9. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you notice what he said there? If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you will not be saved. It is a vital element of the gospel. Towards the end part of the book of Acts, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and he goes to Mars Hill in Athens, a place where all the Greeks like to hang out. And of course, the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection, just like most people today, for the same reason people don't believe it today. And Paul looks around, he notices they have all these idols. And the idols are there and they have all these names you know, Dionysus and Artemis and whatever, Zeus. And there's one little shrine to the unknown God. And so Paul sees that and he says, hmm, this is an opportunity. I'm going to tell them about the one God they don't know, which is the only one true God and the God they need to know. So he begins to explain to them who God is, the real God, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he explains to them about God. And when he finishes his little sermon, this is what he says. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The text goes on to say, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed and were saved. Will you turn from your wicked way? Will you forsake your unrighteous thoughts? Will you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord? Will you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If you will, you will receive God's gift. You will take your stand on it. And you will be saved. This people is what Easter is all about. This is all of what Easter is about. About Jesus conquering death and proving it by rising from the dead. He is risen. And all God's people say, He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning, this great Easter morning for having the opportunity to remind ourselves of the very simple gospel message 
that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was ro- rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And Father, I know there's people here who don't know you. People who don't mind giving you Easter every once in a while or maybe coming to church on a regular basis, but they're unwilling to forsake their wicked way and their unrighteous thoughts. They're unwilling to repent. Father, I pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would move in their hearts right now through your word and through the Holy Spirit, that you would bring them under great conviction and that they would come to salvation, that they would confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord, that they would believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead. And Father, that they would be saved and transformed as it always happens. For you who began a good work and those who believe will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We thank you for that. Help us all leave here and get home safely. May we wonder the rest of the day at the power of the resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.